0: Guy, Lauren, Satford, welcome to episode three of this podcast between Cedar and Bickle. And in today's podcast, we're going to look at a number of practical considerations for parties and lawyers to consider when in dispute to help with both achieving settlement and also to avoid escalation as part of that. And to start with, it would be good to touch on this idea of relationship preservation, which features heavily throughout the Bickle breathing space guidelines And Guy is author, one of the authors of um, Concept Note 3, Section B. What do we mean by relationship preservation within the uh, the context of
1: disputes? And why is it so important? Uh, Thanks, Ben. Um, I think if I start by perhaps explaining a little bit more about what Section B of the guidelines was really intending to capture... Because if we start, section A, which was the subject of podcast two, was really about that early stage where problems are emerging and dispute emerges, but the parties are still very much in a form of commercial discussion and really trying to equip parties with how they manage that type of process to avoid further escalation. By the time you get to B, you're probably in a situation where the parties have realised this is actually quite a difficult problem to resolve. And they are thinking about what their options might be, which would include looking at the dispute resolution provisions, looking at the escalation provisions, and quite possibly they've already got the lawyers involved, or they are thinking about ultimately going to litigation or some sort of arbitration process. So B is, the section B is a really important point in time, because that can represent a really fundamental change in relationships between a party because if you think about that early process there is really still a relationship in place and b is really that point in time when that relationship has the potential to break down And it's a difficult time in dispute resolution because what can sometimes happen at this point is the parties, to some extent, sort of go off to their respective corners as they try and re-equip themselves to work out how a dispute is going to be resolved. So focusing on relationship preservation at this point in time is actually quite important because if you can maintain that sense and understanding that there is a broader relationship that could be retained it can sometimes avoid some of those habits of parties going off to their respective corners and then perhaps starting again and thinking about right you know that hasn't worked so far so how are we going to perhaps put our case at its highest which of course then has the risk of creating a much broader escalation so that's really what section b is about Mm
0: -hmm. and is there a tendency to look at
1: disputes within the
0: concepts of context of relationships in isolation, what else should parties be thinking about when, when thinking about their disputes?
2: There will very often be a broader relationship and I think ideally you'd want that to somehow ring-fence that dispute and allow that relationship to continue. You'd also may be able to leverage that broader relationship perhaps by bringing in colleagues who may know and have a relationship with a counterpart, who are not involved in the day-to-day issues, they can help perhaps get beyond an impasse. So having that broader relationship in in mind is important. You may not have a choice, right? You may be uh, involved in one part of the business with one counterpart. Uh, There may be other businesses that need to continue. So being aware of that, particularly in in a large organization, is going to be integral to try and find a way through.
3: Yeah, and I, I think as well, looking at, at that from the, the opposite perspective, which is what happens when this breaks down, right? So if, if it gets worse than where the parties currently are at the point, so whether they decide to pursue litigation um, or, or it escalates beyond that and it's a, it's a full relationship breakdown. What's the ramifications, not just for, for this transaction or this contract, but for both the wider relationship with the two parties and for their relationships with others, Supply chains, uh, subcontractor relationships, even, for instance, employees who are staffed on the, on the matter. How are you going to redeploy those people if, if, say, in a construction scenario you get kicked off-site? Or in, in a banking scenario, if, if funds aren't coming through, how does that impact liquidity? What happens? So it's, it's important to, to think it through, and that, that can, I think, sometimes be even harder because you really have to red team it um, and, and think what, what are gonna be the ramifications of this and is that, is that the price I wanna pay in order to escalate this or is there a better way to negotiate out of it?
2: Agreed, and in regulated industries, there may be regulatory implications, there may be issues of, that are reputational. You'd want to look at your position in the market, ensure that uh, you are operating fairly and reasonably and, and are seen to do so, so all of those are, are relevant.
1: One way of looking at this is you could almost break down that relationship into two parts, which is there may be a broader business relationship that exists perhaps between the two parties, some of which will have to continue in any event because they have multiple contracts, multiple relationships, there's other stuff going on. And then there's the question around the relationship around the dispute itself. Uh, And sometimes businesses can manage that broader commercial relationship quite well but you still find there's quite a lot of acrimony around the dispute itself. And I think sometimes it's helpful to to recognize that for a lot of organizations, disputes are a cost of business. Uh, And so actually, as a necessary evil of um, of running a large business, you may have to have those disputes. It does not necessarily mean that you burn those relationships uh, or that you can't maintain a relationship in order to drive a more efficient process one of the reasons I think often it can go wrong at this point in time as a dispute is evolving is because inevitably you've had commercial parties, perhaps on both sides, they've taken internal positions that they've had to report up. They've not been able to resolve that something's gone wrong. You know, maybe one party's wrong, one party's right, or it's a mix. But it's very difficult sometimes for those individuals to then, to use the term, save face and still find a way of resolving it. So that's why, for example, one of the reasons, one of the behaviours that we flag in Section B is around thinking, uh, encouraging parties to think about whether this is a good time, perhaps to bring in someone else to have a look at this, perhaps who doesn't have some of that emotional baggage from the previous rounds of negotiations as they've been trying to sort it out, new perspectives and perhaps, uh, you know, just a different degree of objectivity and maybe can look at it in a dispassionate way.
0: And what are your thoughts about bringing people into the dispute who are not necessarily directly involved with the dispute? It's not without danger
3: in that you have to brief those people. They need to know, you know, the key facts. They need to understand the key relationships. Often it's not just a matter of saying here's the contract and here's a couple letters that went wrong. Um, they They will need to be brought up to speed. But I agree with Guy bringing in at this point in time Is really really can be key because it is important for you to get a fresh perspective but most importantly it's important to give some energy to the team that's been negotiating right they will be they will be weary at this point in time they've been doing their day job which is trying to fulfill the service or the contract that they've they've been working on it's gone wrong and they've also been negotiating on the side of pathway through it's helpful to bring someone else in and help bolster them and and bring them some energy Mm -hmm.
2: I think uh, in my experience, one situation where, where it was really helpful to have someone involved in the broader relationship or in a different relationship come in was at the point in time where the doors were closed, there was no way through, there didn't seem to be any common ground, the parties were entrenched, as you were saying, and having someone come in, speak to their counterpart, say, there's an issue here, we have a broader relationship that's really important to us we are willing to have a discussion bearing in mind this broader commercial relationship and signaling to the other side that actually this approach is not really a sign of weakness, it's about the broader relationship. Partners are not so worried about Becoming, you know, but, but the other side signaling to the other side that they should become now even more entrenched and harden their position because this is a discussion that goes beyond the particular issue. So I think there's a lot of value there. Sometimes, and to your point about teams becoming really weary or p- perhaps feeling vulnerable because maybe the judgment calls that they, they've made, you know, come into question, escalating to or involving a more senior person also might help because they can show confidence both confidence in the team that's dealing with it, but also again, signal to the other side that both parties should be ready to move from their position. And perhaps we as a broader organization are supportive of that move. whatever may have happened at working level. so, so that's I, I agree that that's very useful.
3: Yeah, I think it's, it's also helpful to have someone new who maybe is more open to listening. Um, if, if you've had parties who are or participants who've been involved for a very, very long time, and they're hearing the same thing in different guises. They can start to, to shut down. And one of the things that we see with mediation time and time again is the parties will often say in a successful mediation at the end, I really felt like I was listened to as part of that process. I may not have got what I want, wanted out of it, but I felt like I was listened to. I felt like I was heard. And I felt like that was taken on board as part of the negotiations. And and I agree with you, you know, signaling, bringing in someone more senior, we're taking this seriously, we're investing in this, we want to find a path forward. All of that is a really good thing in terms of helping to preserve the relationship.
1: And you raise an interesting question there as to what is the right skill set for these type of individuals or teams who might come in and, and look at the, a resolution of a dispute at this point in time. Because... I think um, you're right that actually you want someone who's got not just good listening skills, but very good interpersonal skills, because they're potentially going to have to build a relationship with the other party, which is already at a potentially quite stressed situation, and build a relationship of trust, ideally, to be able to have an open dialogue. But I think, as Sappho says, you also need a rela- as someone quite senior within the organization because they need to have the confidence that they're able to make judgment calls along the way that, you know, may be different to the approach that's been taken in the past, but will have the organization's backing for them. I think the other thing I'd say is they need time because, they, they, especially for very, very large disputes there's a lot of facts that need to be assembled and understood now obviously you know you may have lawyers doing some of that in the background but if you haven't given those people that time really are they going to be in in a position to properly get their arms around the issues that are there and i think lauren you made a point in um, in, in podcast two around the challenge of a lot of people involved in disputes that actually they've got a day job and then they are having to deal with litigation on the side as well, which is stressful, it's distracting from their day job, and also it means by definition they only have a limited amount of time to put into the the process of dispute resolution. So bringing in a fresh team potentially allows someone to dedicate more time than would otherwise be the case. And this idea of seniority is very important, because I've spoken to a lot of CEDA
0: mediators who say that sometimes the process has gone wrong when one side has paired a sort of more junior person up a lot against the, they say the CEO of the other company, and that's been seen as an insult. So is it very important to make sure that you match seniority with seniority. That's right. You want to make sure that in the
3: process, what you're dealing with, and the note talks about this, is is having a fair and balanced process, and who attends and their level of of authority and their level of experience will definitely be part of having that sort of mm-hmm. balanced and fair process.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, so we've talked about who, who's going to be involved in these negotiations or potentially taking them over. What about this issue about third parties being involved in these discussions, sort of funders or
1: insurers?
0: What are your thoughts on, on that and the implications of it? Shall I
1: sort of give a view from the perspective of, of one of the authors? We added this, and, and it's probably worth thinking about these points in Section B as almost, it's slightly chronological as well. Mm. So you'll notice that that, that is, is effectively guideline nine, which engages on with the idea of discussing with third parties and, and in particular funders to, to follow these guidelines. This is really recognising perhaps that despite those attempts to resolve before this has really escalated further, and that's not worked looks like we might be going into a formal process, but to recognize that actually there may still be a relationship worth preserving there. And so two things that actually come out of the guidelines in relation to that. One is just because you're going to litigation or arbitration or you're invoking a dispute resolution escalation mechanism does not necessarily mean you have to engage in no-holds-barred wrestling and it's going to be a fight to the death, you can still have an efficient process. You can still have a process that focuses on the issues and trying to get to a resolution of that rather than lots of tactical activity that you sometimes see. So part of of Section B and, and Guideline 9 is to say actually if there are going to be third parties involved in this dispute resolution process, we want them on the same page so we want them focusing on the fact that actually what we're looking for is effective and efficient resolution of the disputes. So funders, quite important, actually arguably it's in their interest because if they happen to be funding a case, they are likely to have an aligned interest which is let's get to a resolution but let's do it as efficiently as possible because we won't necessarily want to be investing any more capital in this than we absolutely need to because that's actually a good economic return for them.
2: My experience is with insurance is that very often you'll involve them from the outset, right? From that very first notification when there may be even at that point just an inkling of a disagreement where you may may feel that you need to notify under your policy. From that point, they are there. You are working with them. You're updating them. Like with any relationship, you need to build trust. They need to know that you are, your organization, the teams within it, are managing the dispute effectively they're seeking a resolution, they're working towards the best possible outcome. And whether or not at that point coverage is confirmed, their interest will be in resolving it and will need to feel that the team in place is able to, to reach an outcome that that's acceptable to them as well and manages their risk. So that will happen from the outset and will continue through any mediation process, any court process or arbitration process discussions, settlement discussions that may follow that even. Um, They need to be on board with you the the entire time. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think uh, insurers are a good example of a third party that also has an aligned interest because if they're paying for the litigation or arbitration costs, clearly they will be interested in keeping those proportionate and low as possible. I I think insurers are actually a very good example, typically. A very... Objective parties in litigation for exactly that reason—they don't tend to get uh, as emotionally committed to cases because it's just business for
2: them. It can be trickier to manage when they haven't confirmed coverage, and, yeah. and and you're still working with them and cooperating with them and providing them with information, and also convincing them that the strategy that you have in place will be an you know—will hopefully enable you to reach an outcome that they will be happy with.
0: And within the context of mediation law, what's best practice around involving third parties in the mediation process? Will they attend on the, the day or will they be available throughout? How typically does it does it work or what's your advice for parties and lawyers?
3: In sort of this phase of whether it's negotiations or, or mediations, but, but when they're having discussions and litigation is, is pending, that what you have is it'll depend on the role that the funder or the insurer is playing. In some instances, an insurer will take over the running of a case if that's the case, then that insurer absolutely has to be front and center, right? They are the decision maker. But most of the time, and in the vast majority of cases, they're kind of sitting in the background uh, behind the curtain. And so in that circumstance, you really want to make sure that person is teed up, that the person with authority to approve, because they'll need to get approval. Even if coverage hasn't been confirmed yet, they'll they'll want at least an indication that they are okay with that settlement. And they'll want to know details as to what is behind that. It's not typically just hey, here's our number. Are you okay with that number? Well, how did you get to that number? What what are the reasons behind that? So they need to be involved, but that's a lot easier to do if they have been brought on the journey. So if they've been notified from the beginning and they're being kept in the loop, then that is is fine, um, and that's usually a pretty easy uh, test to achieve. If they're only getting sort of quarterly updates or things when public accounts and stuff are being published, then it's a much harder hurdle because you've got to back to what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, which is, there'll be a lot of information, there'll be a lot of stuff that isn't even in the, in the written information, and that needs to be conveyed, and, and they need to be brought up to speed with that. Mm-hmm.
2: And even in that relationship, you can think of a third party that can help bring things along and, and act as an intermediary, thinking about um, brokers, for example, in yeah. insurance context. Um, again, in my experience, they've proven key to actually, at the end of a, of a mediation, Enabling the parties to continue that discussion and reaching an agreement outside it, so there, you know, there are ways outside the those involved in the day-to-day, whether it's in House Council, External Council, or the parties themselves, think strategically and maybe reach a resolution in a different way.
3: Yeah, and you'll, you'll be able to draw on their knowledge, right? So typically when you have disputes like this, depending upon how sophisticated, if you have a really sophisticated client, they're dealing with this stuff all the time, right? And it's it's their cost of business. Uh, but if we're looking at, for instance, SMEs, right? They're unlikely to be dealing with more than one or two disputes, maybe in the whole life of their business that goes to, to litigation. But the insurer will be much more skilled and will have much, much more knowledge, or the funder in dealing with a dispute of that type. And they'll be able to use that to their advantage. I think in terms of being able to get, you know, get more information, understand how's this dispute sit more widely within within the ecosystem, and be able to, to then use that as part of their negotiation so that they really know where, where it's sitting and it becomes a little less personal. And that ultimately, that's what we're talking about with the relationships is it's try to focus on the positive aspects of the relationship. And in the context of the dispute, try to minimize those negative aspects another thing i'd
0: like to ask you about um, is to do with the pace of proceedings and the impact that can have so guy if we start with you what are your thoughts on the sort of pace of proceedings um, when it comes to disputes
1: this goes to the heart of probably the the founding concepts of, of the bickle guidelines because of course the bickle guidelines started life as concept note three which followed concepts Notes one and two, obviously, which were part of what was described as breathing space. And I know that was discussed in, um, in podcast one and two. And of course, you know, breathing space is actually quite an important term because it is genuinely aimed at giving parties time and space to have proper opportunities for reflection, for consideration as to what they really want to achieve. And there is an element of dispute resolution that sometimes once you start on a formal process, and that can even be initiating a dispute under a contract that triggers an escalation process, but sometimes I think people feel that they're, en- they're then on a track and it has to carry on. And you very often see the typical behaviour of one party wants it to go quick. One party wants it to go slow, there's a perception that the party that wants it to go slow is deliberately trying to slow it down because they're just trying to avoid getting to the end of the process. The party that wants it to go fast is typically the claimant, they think that maybe if it's a money claim they just want to get their money as soon as possible. And I think it's really just an opportunity to to encourage everybody to stop and think because If it's not resolved at this point in time, the likely next step is going to be the commencement of some form of formal legal proceeding, which then commits the parties to probably a significant increase in cost and, of course, time. Because the commencement of litigation or arbitration almost guarantees that you are adding six months a year to a resolution process so trying to speed up that immediate process before and get to the start of that process actually is counterproductive in many cases because it probably ends up delaying it whereas actually if you can give yourself a bit more time before the commencement of proceedings that may actually find that what you're really doing is giving yourself two three months to really have a stop really look at this carefully and think do we really want to commit And perhaps think about the position of the other party, because if there is an ongoing relationship, what will happen if we end up in litigation or arbitration? Is it going to burn that relationship? What are the wider implications? And I think from a claimant's perspective, an important point to bear in mind is if it's a money claim and if it's a good claim, in most cases, delay shouldn't really be that much of an issue because you would expect that interest can take care of that, that type of delay. Now, you will get an Difficult situations where perhaps you've got a solvency issue. But in my experience, if you're that close to having a solvency issue, starting proceedings isn't going to help either. So you're still back to that point of of focusing on whether or not now is a good time to just have a bit of a pause.
2: Perversely, perhaps, that the point at which you think you may need to commence proceedings actually could allow, in certain organisations, a party to really focus their minds on what the consequences would be. Because if you're looking at uh, initiating a big claim, for example, you may need to consult with a number of stakeholders, obtain authority, you know, authority, approvals. That requires in-house counsel, with the help of external counsel, other parties, to lay out your case, right? to look at the merits, to get advice on the merits, to work out what the costs of the proceedings would be, what the downside risks uh, are. Litigation risk, we're all, we all understand it as lawyers, clients, internal clients, perhaps, are you know think about their money claim, but don't think about the other risks that arise simply by bringing a dispute to court, relying on witnesses, trawling through many documents, and all of that. Looking at the opportunity cost, so uh, the point at which the dispute escalates could also be, an, you know, uh, give you an opportunity to step back and review your claim and internally have to justify why it is that you're advising today and you're recommending the initiation of proceedings notwithstanding xyz downsides so that can also be a good point in time uh, and a catalyst to try and sort of step back and then think of other pathways other individuals who might help
1: i think that's a very fair point because actually you, you highlight almost a procedural point that is probably not often appreciated which is within an organization at what point in time does responsibility for the case shift maybe from the commercial side of the business to the legal side of the business and often the commencement of litigation guarantees that then that falls within the responsibility of legal and i agree with you sometimes if it looks like there isn't that engagement at that point in time then maybe that is a trigger which can allow then it to be looked at again i think you still then have the challenge that you're then on the track and you're, you're then into that territory of actually do we need to agree more time notwithstanding we've started proceedings in order to allow that process to be to be um, explored albeit by different internal stakeholders.
0: Mm-hmm. Lauren, what, how can PACE impact parties with different means, there might be sort of cash flow issues at play and, and what kind of things can be done to take account for that and, and potentially overcome those challenges?
3: I think Guy touched on this. You know, I, I mean, I always see it when you're when you're looking at a claim. You have one party typically is in the money, uh, and one party is out of the money. That party that is, is in the money, as you touched on, will typically want to slow things down. But that's not always the case. Uh, in particular, for publicly listed companies. Uh, they will have once litigation gets triggered right they're going to have provisioning requirements they're going to have reporting requirements if they don't already um, but they will most certainly once the litigation has started all of that requires them as Safa said to really focus on what are their internal processes and and what are they doing there so I I think in terms of whether you're in the money or out of the money um, the parties have to look at the wider aspects of of how this is going to work and more importantly regardless have to look at what is your legal spend going to be your legal budget needs to be looked at the upside is if you're litigating in the English courts you're going to have to do a cost budget which is great and really helps focus the the parties' minds um, when they see that that staggering figure of what it's going to do to take it to trial for really big claims that still doesn't apply but I think that it is a it definitely is a matter of being able to assess their position And being able to look at at what the pace is and try to find, really try to find, to move beyond the entrenched position that you have in terms of your own personal pace and look at what ultimately is going to be the most cost-efficient way of dealing with the claim. It most certainly is not going to be litigation. If you can reach a negotiated settlement, it is not going to be litigation, both in terms of time, in terms of internal Um, resource which will be spent in terms of external spend, all of that escalates as soon as the litigation button gets hit. And picking up on one other thing that that Guy pointed out is, if you're looking at an arbitration or you're looking at a litigation, once the proceedings are commenced, you will have a timetable. That takes control away from the parties, right? So once you're starting to have to deal with a disclosure timetable and witness statement timetable and all that stuff, you are looking at, at a resource drain, and you're looking at something that is is, is starting to get out of your control. And I think that's one thing maybe we haven't touched on quite as much, but the more you can stay within Section B of the guidelines, the more control you have as a party. And that is always a good thing um, in terms of how you're dealing with your counterparties. Mm
0: -hmm. I think about something that would really slow the pace of proceedings down, standstill agreements. What's the group's thought on the use of standstill agreements?
1: I'm interested in other people's views on this. (laughs) I would say probably, <clears throat> I think there's been a, a bit of a shift that parties, pr- certainly parties with legal advisors are generally more disposed to standstill agreements, I would say now than I've seen in the past. And I think that's a trend that was emerging even before the pandemic. Um, and I think for pra- entirely practical purposes, which is really what we've already discussed, there are occasions when those standstill agreements are being used purely for, for practical purposes, but you know you're quickly going to get that kicked into touch and, and proceedings commence. In my experience, it, it, it comes it's, it's normally well received when there is already a good relationship and a sensible commercial discussion that is either happening or emerging, which allows that to happen because. You know, people can see there is a potential short term resolution that needs to be given time. And, you know, frankly, we should explain the reason you're having a standstill agreement in the first place is probably because either there is a statutory limitation period or there's a contractual limitation period that if it's not got beyond a certain level by that point in time, the claim falls away. So, of course, you're going to want to allow a party, uh, if possible, to have more time to resolve a dispute. Or, Or if the alternative is, I've got to start proceedings, uh, then you're back on that track that we talked about earlier.
2: If limitation is the only thing standing in the way of a negotiated settlement where the parties are sensible, where they do want to reach a resolution, standstill agreements make a lot of sense. And. Right. And, and are the definition of a, of a breathing space uh, so I would I would agree with that and in my experience they've been they've proven very helpful to create to create that space we, we see those tools all the time those legal devices even very simple very standard reservation of rights letters or non-waivered letters you know you want that the contract continues but you want to preserve your rights you want to be able to know that down the line if you need to resort to litigation or arbitration you haven't waived any of your rights, so you have access to all your remedies, so you have that comfort, and at the same time you can, you can explore whether there's another way through. The, the more such devices we can find, I think the more helpful it will be and positive overall.
3: It's not to say, look, if, if, a, if a standstill agreement isn't reached or, or isn't broached even, and parties commence litigation, they can always ask for a stay, right, in order to negotiate. However, that is harder because once that once that process has started and it the momentum is building, it becomes more difficult. So it, it is really important that if there is a limitation issue, I think standstill is a standstill agreement is sort of explored early on and hopefully b- before that concept sorry before the commencement of, of litigation. there can be separate issues and, and this is diverting onto a slightly different topic, but where you have multiple jurisdictions involved, you can have, issues where, where for instance standstill agreements and, and breathing space can be even harder because you will have jurisdiction shopping effectively. And one party it may be in their interest to bring in one jurisdiction. And this some of this goes back to the pace thing that we talked about earlier. And others it may be in their interest to to bring in a different jurisdiction. Now that may be pace, that may be because the law is different and actually it's more favorable in, in one versus the other. And so I think it's also important for parties to be aware of of that. They'll have to think about that very carefully in terms of how they weigh their strategy. But standstill agreements that, for instance, agree that no one's going to do anything for a period of time can be really helpful. So that's where we're looking at at it, not in a limitation
1: context, but in a a jurisdiction shopping context. Mm -hmm. Lauren's given a good example of where that uh, a standstill or, or the the ability to stay out of litigation is going to be impossible anyway yeah. if you've got a race to the courts in a particular jurisdiction. Yeah. But just coming back to, to, to your point, for you are absolutely right that you can have a stay in proceedings. Uh, and interestingly, what what I'm seeing at the moment is I think arbitral tribunals are tending to show a bit more of an awareness and willingness, perhaps, to adjust timetables to allow this as well, because. It's been said that arbitration has been lagging behind litigation when it comes to embracing ADR and there's work going on at the moment in relation to that. But the point you raise is, is important and that is what's the difference in dynamic to a standstill before proceedings have been commenced and a standstill after proceedings have, have been commenced. And this is where like, you need to think about what the typical steps are of a, of a formal process Because a formal process is invariably going to start with some form of claim, and inevitably, because it's commencing a formal litigation process, that claim undoubtedly is going to put the claimant's case at its highest. And at that point in time, that means the defendant or the respondent is going to be choking on their cornflakes over the claims that are being included. Other breakfast cereals are available. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas, and then of course the next step is for the defendant or the respondent to go next and they put their case at the highest as well. Which is why you can sometimes think about this in terms of the distance between the parties. Actually, immediately prior to commencement, the parties are probably closer together than they will be three months after the commencement of proceedings. When they've got far apart because they've actually felt, I'm now in a legal process and therefore I have to put my case at its highest. Because I can't afford to do anything else, because I don't know exactly how this process is going to end up.
2: Maybe having that information about the other side's case after disclosure, when all the documents have been exchanged, so you know your case, you know the other side's case, that can also, you know, just give you a fresh perspective, allow the parties perhaps to start anew. And to think about the issues and, and to focus more, because then they see not only the merits of their own case, uh, and they they also see uh, the merits of the other side's case and where it can go wrong for them or well for the other side. So um, that that you know those opportunities are still there, but at that point in time, parties have put in um, some costs, and and that may also you know, just provide a disincentive to then sort of step back, having committed to the process, sort of step back and say, okay, now we're going to to try and resolve it out of court or, or outside the arbitration.
0: On that note, Lauren, Sapfo, Guy, thank you very much for your time today. And throughout this <coughs> podcast and in all other podcasts, we've talked extensively about the BICL guidelines and full access to those can be found in the podcast description. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, man. Thanks. Thanks.